I was buying houses at the courthouse steps at foreclosure auctions here in California. There was a lot of information you had to keep track of. And everybody else at the foreclosure auction had like a file basket with manila envelopes with different things in it. And they were there's always papers flying around and people going crazy trying to figure out what's going on. And I realized there had to be a better way. So I sat down and started learning how to write computer code. And so that, that was it. I figured if nobody else had what I needed, nobody else knew better what I needed than me. So I might as well write it myself. And I had more time than money back then. So that's what I did. So with everybody's situation being different, you just have to look internally at your own situation and determine what your true goals are. What what do you really need right now? Appreciation, cash flow, tax benefits. Of course, we all say, oh, I want all of that. But it doesn't quite work that way. There's trade-offs. So you have to decide what's most important to you and make sure that the investment strategy you're investing in is going to provide the most benefit to what your needs are. Welcome to Generational Wealth MD's podcast on financial freedom through investing in real estate. My name is Param Balatandapani. I'm a mom, radiologist, real estate investor, and mentor to others looking to start or scale their real estate portfolios. The goal of this podcast is to provide you with inspiration, strategies, and insight so that you can stop trading your time for money and live life on your terms. If you love the episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. So Brian, amazing to have you on here. I'm sure most of the people listening know you, but for those of you who don't know Brian, Brian is CEO of Praxis Capital, which is a vertically integrated real estate private equity investment firm. And he has acquired over, this number may be off a little bit, Brian, but over $800 million worth of real estate over a 30-year career, including over 4,000 multifamily units and more than 700 single family units. And how, how far off are we? Because I think this keeps getting... This probably keeps shifting. I think you pretty, pretty close nailed it. That's that's pretty close. Excellent. So he's also author of The Hands-Off Investor. It's an amazing guide for anyone who's looking to invest in real estate syndications as a passive investor. I love the book and we always, you know, refer our investors to the book and have them take a look at it. He talks about the entire spectrum of real estate syndications, pitfalls you need to know industry standards and how you can do due diligence as a passive investor. I had the fortune of meeting Brian at the Multifamily Wealth Summit, and I'm so glad he's with us today. But I want to start off, Brian, by having you talk about your journey, because I think that in itself is so impressive. So tell us how you got started with real estate investing. Well, it's kind of a funny story. I was 20 years old when I first got started in real estate investing. I knew nothing about real estate. I had no money. I had no friends in the industry. I had no connections. So I figured I was perfectly set up to be a real estate investor because I wasn't really perfectly set up to do much of anything else. So I just, I started reading a few books about real estate investing and it sounded interesting and I thought I'd give it a go. And uh, and kind of the rest is history. I mean, I started out as a house flipper. I was flipping houses kind of on a really small scale in the early years. And then scaled up a little bit more as the years ticked on. And I built my business up to about a couple of dozen house flips a year when I started to sense that the market was about to tank. So I stopped buying houses. That was about 2005. And I kind of got out of the business for about two or three years while the market fell off a cliff and then jumped back in in 2008. And by 2009, I was flipping over 100 houses a year. And I did that for about five years. And meanwhile, I decided I needed to build some other kind of business to 
have a place to put all these investors. So I started a multifamily about 20 years ago and, um, and then never stopped. That is just amazing, especially when you talk about 100 flips a year. So a lot of people in our community are people who want to own real estate directly, right? Active investors. And I want to unpack a few things. When you say 700 single family homes and 100 flips a year, you're obviously the king of systems because you can't do that unless you have your systems down pat. So before we start talk about that, let's talk a little bit about the no money down investing. How did you get started with that? I think that's one of the most beautiful things about real estate, right? You're, you have the ability to go in and you know, if you have the time to put into it, then you're able to, you know, create magic. So tell us how you got started. Yeah, I had no money, so I didn't have a choice. The first, the first property I bought, I got a finance company to finance 80% of the purchase. And I got the seller to finance 20% of the purchase and give me a closing cost credit. So I literally was in it with zero. That was the first one. And then after that, then I got creative in a lot of other ways. And you know, I would get signature lines of credit from the bank. I mean, it's ten or twenty thousand dollars. Every little bit helps. And I could pool the money from the different credit lines. I used to don't ever do this, but I I used to apply for every credit card offer that came in the mail, and then I would get all these credit cards. And so I remember one time I took a stack of credit cards, about three quarters of an inch thick, down to the bank. I handed them all to the teller, and I said, "Cash advance them all to the max, and give me a cashier's check." They look at me like, are you crazy? And it's like, yeah, I'm a little bit crazy, but just do it. So they did. I walked out of there with a cashier's check. I used that to buy a property to flip a, another house. So I, I did anything I could to to get started. That's amazing because it worked, right? It worked. And you obviously knew what you were doing, which is why it worked. But tell us about the systems. I'm sure you started off with like one flip. How did it go from there to like 100 flips a year? <laughs> yeah, so it started out, I was doing onesie, twosie. And then after I've done, I don't know, two or three, four dozen flips, I had figured out that I could quit my job and and go into real estate full time. So I was in law enforcement at the time. So I put in my two weeks notice to the police department and I said, you know, I'm I'm leaving. I do this real estate thing full time. I said to all the guys at the station, I'm like, by the way, I reserve the room of the community center. And if you guys will all come, I'll tell you all about what I'm doing in real estate. So, of course, they all came because they were all curious. How's this, you know, 20, 30-year-old, you know, quitting his job and leaving to do the real estate thing full-time? And so they all came and I, I told them about what I was doing, flipping houses and how I was financing them, the whole thing. And then I said, look, if you guys will invest with me, I'll split the profits with you 50-50. I'll take investments as low as $5,000. And lo and behold, I walked out of that room with $500,000 in commitments from 28 investors with guns. And I was like, now I have to be really careful because if I lose any of their money, I'm a dead man. But that was my very first real estate fund. And I used that money to grow my house flipping business. And that's how I grew it from, you know, doing a few houses a year to doing 100 houses a year. That's crazy. Well, first of all, that you were able to raise that much money the first time you went out and raised it. And the fact that you were using creative financing and then eventually other people's money to start scaling. But tell us a little bit about all the systems that you had to build to take it to that volume of transaction that you were doing. Was that was that just like organic? It just happened? It was hard. It was it was really hard because when I first started in this business, this was, you know, in the early 1990s. And the way I did this business, I was buying houses at the courthouse steps at foreclosure auctions here in California. And you have to pay with cashier's check, Right in full at the time of your bid. So that's why I had to raise money from investors in order to do this. But the other thing was, is 
the method of tracking all this stuff was very archaic. You know, you'd find out about the notices by seeing the legal notice in the newspaper, and then you have to keep track of when the sale is. And then if it postpones, you have to keep track of the new date. You have to research the title and know what liens are on title. Is this a first going to sale, a second, a third? Are there IRS liens or other liens? There was a lot of information you had to keep track of. And everybody else at the foreclosure auction had like a file basket with manila envelopes with different things in it. And they were there's always papers flying around and people going crazy trying to figure out what's going on. And I realized there had to be a better way. So I sat down and started learning how to write computer code. And mm -hmm. I actually wrote my own software that would allow me to track foreclosure auctions, put in all of the data for foreclosure auctions, do my title searches, enter all the data for all the title searches where it would automatically prioritize if the lien was first, second, third, or whatever. If there's other liens, it would subtract all that stuff from the max bid and just did all kinds of stuff. In fact, I still use that to this day, by the way. And so that, that was it. I figured if nobody else had what I needed, nobody else knew better what I needed than me. So I might as well write it myself. And I had more time than money back then. So that's what I did. That's crazy that you actually wrote your own code. But yeah, so you're an entrepreneur at heart, Brian, not just a real estate investor. So that's very entrepreneurial on your part. That's amazing. Well, tell us how you shifted from, see, I'm assuming you were doing a lot of those flips in California, right? So how did you shift to becoming an out-of-state investor? What made you have to transition? And then why the shift to multifamily? Well, if it was 05, so th those are two different questions. The shift to multifamily actually happened sooner than that. But in 05, I realized that California real estate made no sense. I would go to real estate club meetings and investors would come up to me and they would say, I, I want to buy a rental house. I got I to gotta find a rental house. And I would say to them like, why? You know, they're $500,000 and the rents are $1,500 a month. You know, why do you need to buy this rental house so badly? Oh, because, you know, my neighbor, he's a plumber and he bought this house and it went up in value a million dollars. He made more money doing that than he did plumbing and blah, blah, blah. So I've got to do it too. And I thought, well, boy, this is going to be a problem, right? There's, there's going to be massive headache chaos. There's going to be tons of foreclosures for me to buy, but I want no part of what's going on right now. So that's when I essentially stopped buying real estate and decided like, I need to maybe look in another market. Where could I go where prices have, have not run up? Like in California, by this point, prices had gone way high. Where can I go where they haven't done that? So I, I came upon Buffalo, New York, of all places. I'm like, the values have never gone up. They like the property has been the same value for years. So if I buy a property there, I could actually get cash flow and forget about the appreciation. I don't need that. What I don't want is depreciation. I didn't want property values that went down. So I, I bought an 11 unit apartment building there. Okay. And that was my first out of state investment. And it was apartments because I had gotten into apartments a few years earlier on a 1031 exchange here in California. Makes sense. Makes sense. You know, economies of scale. Do you still invest in Buffalo, New York? Actually, I, I don't actively invest there, but I still to this day own that property that I bought out there like, I don't know, 15 or 18 years ago. If you're interested in learning how to invest in long-term and short-term rentals the right way, so you can accelerate to financial independence with the support of mentorship, community, and vetted investor agents in strong markets across the country, then get on the waitlist for the next cohort of Creating Generational Freedom at www.generationalwealthmd.com. You don't have to learn from decades of costly mistakes by yourself. The program is only open for enrollment in the spring and fall each year. 
In the last six months alone, our members have acquired over $60 million of real estate, and more importantly, they're living life and practicing medicine on their terms. You don't have to do it alone. And it's probably worth a lot more than it was even in that market. Yeah, I, this is an 11-unit building. I think I paid like 300 for it, mm -hmm. and it's worth well over a million now. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, yeah, sounds about right. Brian, you have been the master at timing cycles, and I know you've already been through one cycle, one real estate cycle, right, with the 05 downturn. Tell us a little bit about how you're pivoting right now with what you're doing and, you know, what changes you're seeing in the market right now. Yeah, timing is really important. You know, people like to say, just buy real estate and wait, right? And it'll always go up in value. And that that may be true, but if it goes down in value by 20%, and then you have to wait for it to go back up, you could go a decade just to get back to even. So timing really is important. I've been through several cycles. I went through the 2000.com bubble burst, which didn't have a huge effect on real estate, but did have some effect on the economy. I went through the 05 to 07 great financial collapse that had a devastating effect on real estate went through the 09 climb and then the 2010 decline after the there was like a first time home buyer tax credit so there was like a a double dip in the market so went through the double dip navigated that pretty well and then uh, of course you know the covid run up yeah uh, that was that was an interesting time but i i think timing has always been been really important i i got out of the you know heavy buying in about 05 right before the collapse i got back in in 2009 mm -hmm. And then by 2010, I came up with a thesis that home prices in California were going to double in five years. So I'm like, I'm going to start buying houses to rent out. So I went to a family office conference and I was talking about, you know, I'm shifting from this buy and flip strategy to a buy and hold strategy. And this guy came up to me after the, after the speech and he was like, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. This is the worst time to buy houses to hold. This is the time to be in the flipping business, yada, yada, yada. But I stuck to it and bought 120 rental houses in the San Francisco Bay Area in, mm -hmm. you know, 09, 10, 11, uh, which by 2015, not only doubled, but doubled in a half and then sold them at, you know, a great time to get out and had a, a really nice profit on that. And then started buying multifamily heavily in about 2016, 17. And then 2021, I started to sense that the market was topping out. So I figured it was time to get out. So I had about 4,000 multifamily units, but from 21 to early 22, I sold three quarters of them, mm -hmm. sold about 3,000 multifamily units, also sold one of my companies in uh, middle of 2022. So Is basically- the lending? The lending, the lending company. Yeah, I sold that. So I basically almost got completely out of everything middle of last year. And then, then the you know rug got pulled out from under us, and I, I couldn't be more happy with that decision. Yeah. What does your direct ownership portfolio look like right now? Or, or um, do you still have any single family homes in there, or is it all multifamily? Yeah, I have a mix. Actually, I have a couple single families, quite a few small multis in my personal portfolio, around forty, probably forty or so units. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in our syndication portfolio, I've got still about eight or nine hundred units left. Okay. And then plans to hold them and weather the, the cycle. Yeah, exactly. These are, are ones I kept intentionally because they were class A properties in a great market. And yeah. uh, and I think that- Cash those flowing. Are, yeah, the, that's right. And those are worthy of holding on to. Yeah. We sold out of everything else. 
Makes sense. Makes sense. Brian, a lot of our members on here are listening to us invest in syndications already or are considering investing in syndications. And I know in your book, you talk about how even within the real estate syndication space, there's a whole spectrum as far as risk and you know, return profiles in terms of cash flow and velocity of growth. And I always think the first step is identifying what your goals are and what makes sense to you. So you're not looking at everything as a shiny object and getting attracted to it. Can you kind of demystify that a little bit? Okay, what do they need to think about in terms of their goals before they even start looking at opportunities that are presented to them? Yeah, everybody's personal situation is different, right? So we have, we have a lot of physician investors, for example, who would say, I'm making great money. I have no time to chase down real estate and I don't really need more income. They're looking really at the depreciation or getting, you know, income or cash flow with depreciation to offset the tax. So, you know, for a lot of high income earners, it's a bit of a tax and appreciation play. Uh, for retired people, it's all about cash flow. Appreciation, they, you know, sure they care, but they don't really care. I mean, they want to yeah. see cash flow. Young people tend to want appreciation prioritized over cash flow because they want to build an asset base so that when they are older, they have assets to invest that will generate cash flow. So with everybody's situation being different, you just have to look internally at your own situation and determine what your true goals are. What, what do you really need right now? Appreciation, cash flow, tax benefits. Of course, we all say, oh, I want all of that, but it doesn't quite work that way. There's trade-offs. So you have to decide what's most important to you and make sure that the investment strategy you're investing in is going to provide the most benefit to what your needs are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right about that. So Brian, Cap rates are beginning to decompress a little bit. We're seeing lending constraints, transaction volumes lowering. Which multifamily assets do you think are probably most likely to face distress right now? Because I feel like you know, all of them are not going to be the same. So where are you seeing the most distress? What do you anticipate? The most distress is going to come actually from owners who didn't finance properly. People who got short-term bridge loans that have maturities coming up, maybe over leveraged where when they bought it, they were at you know 70, 80 to 90% loan to value ratios. Uh, those are going to be where you see the heaviest distress. And, and that's going to that's gonna fall all the way across the commercial real estate spectrum. There's people that were buying class C and D properties with uh, short-term bridge financing. And there were people buying A plus new construction properties with short-term bridge financing. So in that respect, you're going to have you know, all sectors of residential income real estate affected. Uh, outside of that, structure aside, I think your class C properties are probably going to feel the biggest pinch probably from you know, lack of collections. Those are, those are going to have Which is contrary to what you hear people say. They always it say is. class B and C tends to be recession resilient. Yeah, and that's just hogwash. I, I have not seen that in yeah. actual practice. Yeah. In my experience, it's been the exact opposite. People will have the thesis that people will downclass. Yeah. So the class B people will move to class C, class A people move to class B. Class A is empty and class C is always full. And that's not the way it works. I mean, if somebody lives in a class B property and times get tough, they're actually more inclined to take on a roommate and double up or maybe even double up an up class and go to class A before they're going to go into a class C property. And the class C people will hang out there until the sheriff shows up. So you're going to have collection issues. So I've, I've had a lot of bad luck with class C. What states do you invest in, Brian? I'm just curious to know, um, Praxis Capital, do you focus on, you know, the Sunbelt, landlord-friendly states? And Yes, I would say mostly Sunbelt, Sunbelt red states. You know, the, your, 
your southern, you know, Arizona, Texas, Georgia, Florida, Carolinas, Tennessee, yeah. those are high on our target list right now with what's left of our portfolio. We own in Arizona, Georgia, and Alabama. Perfect. Brian, I know you said you're sitting on the sidelines for a little bit. So when would you know that it's time for you to start jumping in? What's your criteria? Yeah, I haven't bought anything in over a year and a half and probably won't. Well, I, we've done a few house flips here and there because there is some, there is some, it's interesting. There's some opportunities out there in small real estate right now. So single family house flips, single family rentals, small multi, duplexes, fourplexes, fiveplexes, where you have troubled owners, that kind of stuff. You can find one-off deals in that space, but in the large multi-space, I'm completely standing off right now. I think, you know, values have fallen probably 20%. I think that's the tip of the iceberg. They're only really showing how far the true value has actually gone down, given where we are today. So I, I think we have, we have more pain before we start to see gain. For those flips that you're, you're doing right now, is the plan to hold them if you need to in, in the event that you aren't able to sell or, you know, which markets are you doing those in where you feel like you're still comfortable doing that? Yeah. Locally here in California where, you know, the, the markets are really quite strong. In fact, most of the flips we're doing, we're getting multiple offers above yeah. asking price within, you know, days, if not weeks of listing it. So uh, our plan is not to hold them. If I feel that we're going to have to hold a property because we might not be able to sell it, I'd rather just not get into it and buy it in the first place. Makes sense. And we've seen that in, I think it's in mo many markets throughout the country, inventory is so low that, you know, home prices have stayed high. It's still a, you know, seller's market over here. Yeah. In so a lot of markets it is, but there's also another thing that people need to keep in mind when they're house flipping is that so some house flippers, they rely on home appreciation in order to make a profit. And I don't do that. You know, we have to be able to make a profit if the value doesn't move at all. Even if it moves down a little bit, we at least have to be able to break even. So we don't have to have momentum in the market in order to be profitable. You know, we won't buy that high. Yeah. So that's that's a distinction. That's why, like I said, if, if we don't think we can sell it, make a profit, even at a little bit less sales price, then we're not buying it. And so these are distressed assets that you usually acquire? Foreclosures from the courthouse steps. Yeah. So distressed in that regard. But I mean, literally some houses you walk in and it's like paint and carpet and you're out of there. Yeah. Uh, those, those are pretty rare, few and far between. They were every day we were buying those back in the day. But these days, they generally need a little more work than that. Absolutely. So before we wrap it up, Brian, what is your advice to investors who are investing passively in syndications? When they're looking at deals right now, what do you think they should keep an eye out for? I think you kind of covered it, but like just to summarize everything. Well, I, I think the most important thing you need to look out for is the sponsor that you're seeking to invest with. You know, people ask me all the time, like, how do I find a deal to invest in? And it's like, well, you start by asking the right question because where do I find a deal is the wrong question. What you really need to be asking is how do I find investment sponsors that I can invest with that will be a long-term partner for me? Because that's really where the rubber meets the road. You know, you can yeah. find a good deal and some screw up sponsor can mess the whole thing up. So it's really all about finding the right syndication sponsor that's been through market cycles, been through tough times, really knows what they're doing and is finding good deals. And, and if they're buying stuff right now, I don't know, I'd take a really close look because I just don't, I can't find an excuse to buy anything right now. So that might be cause for concern or a red flag. Yeah, we've pivoted as far as acquisitions to, it's more like a flight to safety where we're doing cash flowing assets day one, more like class A minus, you know, loan assumptions that have a seven year term left on them, things like that. But I agree, it's just um, got to be very cautious right now. Timing and the way you finance are critical. I think yeah. you're very smart for looking at loan assumptions right now. 
that's a great way to look for things at class a class a minus that's the only thing that i'm buying right now is when, yeah. if i were to buy the only thing we're looking at right now is really you know a a minus maybe b plus assets exactly uh, you know we're really looking at stuff built after 2000 that's you know it's to me it's a flight to safety sounds good brian now if anyone wants to get in touch with you how would they get in touch with you and guys we're going to drop in the show notes the link to brian's book and to the website but if you wanted to give them additional information brian yeah they can always find us on our website our company's praxis capital the website is praxcap.com it's p-r-a-x-c-a-p.com thank you so much brian thanks I'm for having me book here i don't think we have any questions just thank yous from a lot of people so thank you so much for making the time brian yeah it's my pleasure thanks for having me here If you're interested in learning how to invest in long-term and short-term rentals the right way, so you can accelerate to financial independence with the support of mentorship, community, and vetted investor agents and strong markets across the country, then get on the waitlist for the next cohort of Creating Generational Freedom at www.generationalwealthmd.com. You don't have to learn from decades of costly mistakes by yourself. The program is only open for enrollment in the spring and fall each year. In the last six months alone, our members have acquired over $60 million of real estate, and more importantly, they're living life and practicing medicine on their terms. You don't have to do it alone. I hope you've been inspired by this episode and are ready to take action. Your feedback means the world to me. If you found value in what you heard, I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate the podcast, leave a review, and follow the podcast. And if you really like the episode, share it with a friend. Your ratings, reviews, follows, and shares not only motivate me, but they also help others discover the show and join the community. So please share your thoughts. Let me know what you liked and even what you'd like to hear more of in the future. I can't wait to hear from you. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes. And until next time, take care.